Um, we are in Second Chronicles. We are uh, making progress, losing a few students, but uh, I'm sure the good ones stayed, right? All right. So Second um, Chronicles chapter one, verses uh, one to six. Solomon becomes a secure, established king that God was with and greatly exalted. Um, and um, the fact that God's with him, of course, is a very significant factor. He gets all of the Israelites together, um, verse 2, and they go where? Gibeon. Now, why Gibeon? That's where the tabernacle was. Remember, the tabernacle and the ark aren't in the same place yet. Tabernacle's in Gibeon, the ark's in <coughs> Jerusalem, because who brought it there? David. We read about that yesterday. Um, but Gibeon is where the tent is, and where what other piece of furniture that's important is? The altar. There are two altars. Which altar is this? Bronze altar, meaning it was for burnt offerings. The other altar was made of gold and is for incense, yes. This altar was the one in the temple courtyard that was used for the sacrifices. It was the bronze altar made by whom? And that goes all the way back to the time period of Moses, we're developing a lot of these parallels between the tabernacle and the temple, Moses and David, Joshua and Solomon, that sort of thing. And uh, so uh, he's worshiping God with all the people and abundant offerings there at the bronze altar at the tabernacle in Gibeon. Comments and questions? <coughs> okay, 7 to 13. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness, and I have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, Because you have had this in mind, and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or for the life of those who hate you. 
nor have you asked, even, nor have you even asked as for a long life. For you have asked for, for yourself wisdom and knowledge, that you may rule my people, over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has, has possessed, nor those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place, which is at Gibeon, from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. God appeared to Solomon that night and gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. That God, uh, Solomon receives a blank check signed by God. <laughs> you name it, I'll give it. <laughs> That's pretty exciting. Um, think about what Solomon might have asked. That, uh, can you not imagine a lot of things? that you might have wanted if you had been in Solomon's position and you knew God was going to give it to you? But what is it that Solomon does ask? He wants wisdom and knowledge because to rule over God's people, God made him the ruler over this great people, he wants wisdom and knowledge so he can rule, so he can rule well and so he can be a blessing to the people of God. Obviously, leadership, good leadership, demands wisdom and knowledge. But what does that tell you about Solomon, the fact that he asked this? He's sincere? Doing what his father told him to? <laughs> Shows some wisdom to ask this, that's the truth. Yes? Yes? What do you see as his real <coughs> desires? What does this show you about what really means something to Solomon? He wants to serve. Yeah. He's unselfish. He's thinking about what's best for the Lord and the people. He's not thinking about what would exalt him or what would be in his own narrow, selfish best interest. This is what a leader ought to do. A leader ought to be concerned about leading well, about serving, about being unselfish. He's asking for gifts that will help him help God's people. Uh, that's really exciting. That's really an amazing thing. Um, that he had that kind of, of heart, that kind of attitude. Uh, focused on God and not himself. Focused on the people and not himself as an individual. When he asked that, what was God's answer? I'll give you what you ask for, wisdom and knowledge, and I'll add to it riches and wealth and honor, better than any of the kings have received. Reminds you of a passage like Ephesians 3.20. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to his power which works in us. You know, God often has generosity beyond our wildest dreams. Have you ever prayed for something? And God didn't just answer your prayer. He went way beyond what you even thought about him answering and giving. That's what he's doing here with Solomon. God is impressed with the unselfish servant spirit that Solomon demonstrates here. Well, I want you to think about this a little bit. Well, what if you had been Solomon? What if you had received a promise like this? Ask what I shall give you. Just tell me what you want. 
How would you have felt if you had been Solomon that night in that vision? What kind of emotion would you have felt? Would that have seemed exciting? I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, have you ever uh, seen like Aladdin's lamp or something that way? I mean, what would you think if the genie pops out and says, hey, you name it, I'll give it to you. Would you like to have three wishes? You know, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be tremendous to have God say, hey, you name it. Ask what you want and I'll give it to you. Would we in that situation choose to ask wisely? Now I'm setting you guys up so you've got to play along with me. No, but I want you to be excited. I want you to think, wow, that would be really awesome. You know, live in this story. Imagine yourself being Solomon. Now what I'm setting you up for are some New Testament passages that I'd like for you to look at. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or Luke 11. Luke 11, verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Or John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. It seems to me that what God offers Solomon is what he has also offered us. God has appeared to us in the scriptures and said, ask what I shall give you. Now, I understand that there are some conditions on that. This is not an unlimited promise in the New Testament for everybody. And it's not for every kind of request. It's asking in his name. It's asking according to his will. But it still is a tremendous promise. And we do a lot of asking, don't we? How many prayers have you prayed in the last month where you haven't asked for anything? Do we ask like Solomon? Maybe we aren't blessed like Solomon because we don't ask like Solomon. Are most of your requests selfish and self-centered, or are they God-centered and service-centered? So, I think, really, Solomon is more or less in the same position that we often are in. And uh, we would do well to have the heart of Solomon in making our requests. Comments and questions? So we've dealt in chapter 1 so far with Solomon's worship, 2 to 6, Solomon's wisdom, 7 to 13, now Solomon's wealth, 14 to 17. Solomon amassed chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 
Alright, look at what he had. In 14, what did he have? <coughs> Chariots and horses used for what, probably? War. In 15, what did he have? How much silver and gold did he have? Can you imagine? As gold and silver as plentiful as stones? That's incredible. And cedars as plentiful as sycamores. And then he talks about his trade in verses 16 and 17. God did bless Solomon with great riches, just like he said he would. So, Solomon's worship, wisdom, and wealth in chapter 1. Comments and questions? Chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 10. Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord, and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70 men to carry loads, and 80,000 men. 70, Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads, and 80,000 men to pour stone in the mountain, and 3,600 to supervise them. <coughs> then Solomon sent word to Huron, the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David, my father, and sent him through this to build for to build him a house to dwell in, so do for me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicating it to him to burn fragrant incense before him, and to set out the showbread continually, and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening, on Sabbath and on new moons, and on the appointed feast of the, of the Lord our God, this being required forever and ever. And the house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the, for the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him, except the, except the burnt incense before him? And now send me, a skilled man, send me a skilled man to work in the gold and, and silver and brass and iron and in purple, crimson, and violet fabric. And who knows... <coughs> How to make and who knows how to make engravings to work with the skilled men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber of Lebanon. And indeed, my servants will work with your servants to prepare timber in abundance for me, for the house which I am about to build will be great and wonderful. Now behold, I will give to your servants the woodsmen who cut the timber. 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, and 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of wood. Okay, <laughs> so Solomon's decided to build the house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace, and he's got <laughs> workers to do it in verse 2, so he writes a letter to... Yeah, 
Now, that's interesting. Um, Hiram had provided material for David's palace, and Solomon informs Hiram that he's about to build a house for the name of God. Um, and, um, well, what's this house need to be like, according to Solomon? Why? Yes, this is a house for a very, very great God. So this doesn't need to be some ordinary little thing. This needs to be great, magnificent, splendid, and, and I need the best of everything for this. You know, because it's being built for God, we must spare no expense. We must spare no effort. Hiram, I'm, I, this is a really great project here, and I need your cooperation in, in this. Um, there's so much in this that, that's fascinating to me. Think about what he says in verse 5 to Hiram. Hiram is who? The king of Tyre. What's he telling Hiram in verse 5? That's exactly right. Our God is the biggest and the best there is. Would you say that to a pagan king? Now, I don't think he's saying that in any sort of way to personally exalt himself. It's not my God is greater than your God. It's my God is greater than your God. You know, it's emphasis on the greatness of the Lord. But he wasn't ashamed to praise the greatness of God even when he's writing to a pagan king who probably wouldn't think that way. Are we ashamed to praise the greatness of God when we're around unbelievers who probably wouldn't see it that way? You know, I think that, that speaks well of Solomon. I mean, he, you know, he's not hesitant to, uh, to tell him how great God is. And uh, it, it does seem reasonable to me that if God's that great, it would be right that you would build the best house you could for him. Isn't that a reasonable thing? It more or less motivates extravagance. You know, do all you can. Now, what's the lesson for us? We need to build the biggest church building we can? No. How can we build a magnificent house for God? Yes. Yes. Think about it on the personal level. It ought to motivate us to be extravagant in the building of holy lives for God. He deserves the holiest and purest and sincerest and, and most honest lives you could ever imagine because of how great he is. I think that's a good lesson for us in that. And then, you know, verse 6. How does Solomon see this temple? In what sense is it a house for God? <clears throat> a house for his name. What does that mean? Precisely. You're going to 
be able to build a house big enough to contain God? You know, he'd bust out the walls of any house. I don't care how big it is. He won't fit. So this is not being thought of as a way of boxing God into the house. So what is it? Yes? Now I'm going to... Uh, let me, I'm taking a moment to kind of develop a thought here that we'll see crop up several times now. Uh, but do you understand the mindset behind the building of the temple, what the true purpose of it was? To glorify him, yes. Yes. It's where the people can find God. It's not a place where you limit God, but it's a place where God has humbled himself to meet the people. It's a place where he's chosen to put his name, a place where we can have contact with him. So it's really for the people's benefit that God was willing to set up a place where he could meet them. Not a place that would limit him, but a place that would give them some more physical way of seeing them having contact with God. Um, we'll talk about that some more as well. Do you have comments and questions through verse 6? Yes. Good point. Other thoughts? In, so, so look at what specific things David needs from Hiram. In verse 7, a skilled craftsman to train my men as to how to work with gold, silver, brass, iron, purple, crimson, violet fabrics, and engravings. And what does he need in 8 and 9? <coughs> timber. The cedar and the cypress and the algum timber. And uh, so he's wanting um, uh, the, the lumber from uh, Hiram because of the cedars uh, of Lebanon that were so famous. Um, and what is David promising to do for Hiram in terms of compensation? Pay him what? Food. Pay him in food. Verse 10. All right, comments and questions. Yeah, it is. Quite a bit. <laughs> But I assume he's planning on lots of lumber. I don't know. I usually shower. But. Okay. <laughs> 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 
Took a load off of Kyle's mind right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other comments? about that, Kyle? Uh, if so, it would have to be in the first part of Ezra, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, they brought back some things from the temple. Uh, maybe like uh, Ezra 2 uh, 69 would be a passage that might sort of relate. Okay. Other thoughts? All right, 11 to 18. What is 11 to 16? Hiram's letter back agreeing to the proposal. Hiram's letter back parallels Solomon's letter. Verses 11 and 12 parallels 3 through 6. What's Hiram saying in 11 and 12? Because very good, he's praising God, recognizing what God has done in Solomon. Um, it's interesting when you hear a Gentile praising God. There are several prophetic texts that prophesy about how, in the future, the Gentiles would come to praise God. Um, those are always interesting texts. Uh, I would cite a couple of them for you. Zephaniah 3.10, 1 
is a good one. Malachi 1.11 is a good one, and there's many others. But so this Gentile praises God for the wisdom he gave Solomon. And then verse 13 and 14 more or less answer verse 7. 13 and 14, what's Hiram saying? I'm going to send Huram Abbey to you. And uh, who is Huram Abbey? He's skilled in what? You name it, he can work in it. This guy's craftsman uh, par excellence. And uh, who is he actually? Yes. 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 Son of a night woman and a Tarian father. Look at First Kings seven fourteen. First Kings seven fourteen. You see a problem? What's the problem? In First Kings, he's his mother's from Naphtali. In Second Chronicles, she's from Dan. What do you do about that? Yeah. Excellent. Is it possible she's from Dan but lives in Naphtali, or that she's from Naphtali and lives in Dan? Yeah, I think that's probably the answer. You know, you have that sometimes. Samuel, for example, he was from what tribe? Levi. But look at First Samuel 1. <coughs> and verse uh, 1. We know from First Chronicles, those genealogies, Samuel was from Levi. We know from some other reasons too. But First Samuel 1, 1 would lead you to believe he was from where? Ephraim. Well, of course. Did the Levites ever live in the tribe of Levi? There was no tribe of Levi to live in. They lived in other tribes. So he was a Levite living in Ephraim. So I think that would be the explanation. I don't know which way it goes. It's not a big deal. These are typical contradictions. When people start pointing out contradictions in the Bible, here's the kind of thing they point out. Now, it does show there's no collusion. Chronicles wasn't just trying to contort his record to get it to agree with kings or something like that. But, you know, there's a perfectly legitimate explanation uh, for those kinds of things, and I think that's probably the right one. And uh, then in 15 and 16, you've got the parallel to 8 and 9, um, where he's uh, saying what? I'm saying what? Yeah, all right, 9 and 10, really. Uh, go ahead and send me the uh, food, and we'll send you the timber. Maybe he's saying, uh, I'd like to see some of that food up front before I send the timber. I'm not sure if that's his point. But at any rate, he's answering, answering the letter and basically agreeing that they will provide the, the skilled man and the timber in exchange for food.
And then in verses 17 and 18, we look again at Yeah, the workers. Now, you know, some of these things are just, you know, I don't know that this is a big deal, but look at the structure of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2, the workers. 3 through 10, Solomon's letter to Hiram. 11 to 16, Hiram, Hiram's letter answering Solomon. And 17 and 18, we're back to the workers. So it's workers, Solomon's letter, Hiram's letter, workers. Comments and questions? Well, it was easy for them to say those sorts of things because they did believe in multiple gods. So I suspect he's not converted. Plus, what is Hiram doing there when he says that in a way? Why would he want to do that? The customer. You know, the customer's always right. You know, you flatter the god of a customer, why not? So uh, I suspect that may be part of it, that... Uh, you know, but because they believed in multiple gods, they really don't have any conscience problem with saying, well, well you've just got a beautiful religion. You know, and we were, I just really, your, your gods are wonderful God. Kind of like, I mean, we're almost to that point today. I mean, most people, you know, well, I mean, they're, they're willing to say that, you know, well, well, we just really respect the gods of the Hindus and the gods of the, uh, you know, Native Americans and the, the you know, gods of Islam, and whatever. I mean, you know, we're pretty much to the point where, you know, everything's beautiful in its own way, and, you know, well, that's, that's really a beautiful thing for you. And that's kind of, I think, what you've got in these. I don't think it's conversion. But good, good, good observation. Yes. He, he more used foreigners for his absolute slave labor, but he had a peacetime draft in which he'd like use his people one month out of three and things like that. And the heavy burden of this draft plus the heavy burden of the taxation was what led up to the request of Rehoboam to lighten the load. And they didn't. And he, he refused, and so that precipitated the split. So this is starting to give us the background for that. You do have a lot of signs of a north-south division in thinking, even back, you know, early on in Joshua and Judges and so forth. There's sometimes you'll see some sectional differences. So there's always kind of a north and a south to it, kind of like there was in this country. I mean, long before the Civil War, there were a lot of differences between the north and the south, but the thing that really precipitated the crisis was this desire to have some relief from the forced labor and the taxation. Other comments and questions? Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2.
or land to avoid these battles. He began to build on the second day and the second month of the fourth year of his year. Okay. Where did he build this house? Which is the place where the angel stopped and David offered the sacrifices to appease God's wrath to an appropriate place of encounter with the Lord where the people find mercy and are able to atone for sin. But this is also another significant place. What else does he call it? Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah. What happened there? Where Abraham offers Isaac. Isn't that amazing? The temple site was a famous site. You know, you can look at Genesis 22, too. And uh, so it was the place where Abraham had almost offered Isaac. And uh, he encountered God's mercy, substituting the ram for his son. And the place where David found God's mercy, God accepting the sacrifice and stopping the sword in the angel's hand. An appropriate place to meet God and ask for mercy. Comments and questions? It is. It's, uh... Certainly. Isaac is a foreshadowing of a greater sacrifice. Definitely. Other thoughts? Now, chapter 3 is basically some of the uh, details of the construction. Um, in verse 3, you have the dimensions of the temple. In verse 4, the porch. Verses 5 through 7, the main room of the temple. In 8 through 13, the Holy of Holies, um, what, uh, as you look at 8 through 13, what building material especially characterizes the Holy of Holies? Gold. The closer you get to God, the more precious the material. Basically, the courtyard of the temple were used what kind of building material? Bronze. But you get inside, and especially to get to the Holy of Holies, this is gold. This is precious. Now, verse 14 is the veil, and verses 15 to 17 are two pillars or columns that were there at the temple. That's the chapter of the details of the construction of the temple. I don't uh, particularly have any uh, desire to go into great length on my part discussing those things. What would you like to say about chapter 3? Yes, they did. Jacob and Boaz. That does seem odd. Why does it seem odd? I don't know. Anybody know why they named the pillars? 
probably does. I don't know what, though. 